1: Five, four, three, two, one, zero. all in running look we have a look off.
0: Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of uk and the INews people live from Paris and newly arrived in London, I've got uh, Calvin Betton, our resident tennis coach. We're going to look back at day seven of the French Open, uh, which is Saturday, I believe. Starting to lose track of days. Uh, And we'll also have a bit of a wider look back at the first week. Uh, First of all, Calvin, you've obviously been in Paris this week. Uh, A disappointing result for, for Henry and Jules that I kind of talked about it. But I mean, interesting to get your take. There were a set to break up, obviously. Uh,
1: yeah, set and break up, and um, a couple of points for a double break. Um, at the start of the second set, it was interesting that pair that they lost to, they lost three and love in the next round. And I did there was part of me that thought, I wonder whether that could have happened in a different timeline, because <laughs> um, we would have had a set and uh, three love serving. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, they they played well. The other guys, they, they came back. They had some big shots um, at key moments and some
0: fluky shots at key moments. <laughs> um, and it, yeah. It's the first time I've seen Ben Shelton like properly up close And that serve. I mean, there's obviously lots of things, like people talk about Ben Shelton a lot. And I know you, you in particular have said that you think he's a bit of a superstar in the making. Having... Having watched him hit bombs from the baseline, it, does it, do you feel any more or less sure of that?
1: I mean, his serve is world class. It's yeah. it's an absolute. Now, his serve when it's going well is world class. Um, mm. His first serve. There's still work to do on his second serve. I think he doesn't. I mean, I'm going purely on doubles here, but he doesn't win enough points on his second serve in doubles. It's it's yeah. really low, um, and it's a bit the service motion when it's when it's going great it's a work of art it looks fantastic but when it's not there's a lot of moving parts in there and when you've got that many moving parts and there's a lot of things that can go wrong hmm. Um, but he's he, athletically he's a phenomenal talent Um, hmm. I mean I, you'd have seen it up there uh, James when you were watching that he's just impossible to lob he's like <laughs> an NBA player Um yeah. he, there's no way that you can get the ball he's so fast to get back and he's so athletic with the smash he's he's very good at it there's um there's obviously areas that he will have to improve on but it's interesting that his dad has just resigned from his job at uh, as head coach of university of florida to um to coach him now full time
0: mm, that is interesting and yeah okay and his dad um, his,
1: his dad by the way was a former top 100 tennis player um no, I didn't and, know is that. A, okay. and is a successful coach at florida so it's not like your usual um parent deciding they're coaching their child right Okay. yeah, yeah it was interesting good. in the initial statement when he was leaving florida state uh, university of florida he said he was leaving to spend more time with his family and i said <laughs> to some of the lads yeah i reckon that will be one particular member of his family <laughs> <laughs> um and then then two days later he announced that he would only he wouldn't be seeing a great deal more of his wife and daughters. <laughs>
0: Brilliant. Um you've obviously not been back to the French Open for a few years and, and not necessarily in it with with like main draw players. What what was your what's it how does it compare to to say, you know, to Wimbledon or something like that?
1: Well it is Tennis unfiltered, this isn't it? So I'll go in unfiltered <laughs> on it. Um, yeah, it, it's not a great tournament. Um, and that's just not my opinion. That's the opinion of, of, of a, many of the players who were playing in it. Um, yeah. they, they think it's the players think it's by far the worst of the slams. Um, really? The site's too small for starters. Um, yeah. there's, there's basically no practice on site, um, there's some practice near the site. But again, it's not really the same as practicing on site. As, as mm. nice as those places are, the courts are slightly different. At, at two out of the three um, off, I mean, one of one of the off-site practices is just a park, <laughs> um, and then just other little things as well. Like you know, it may seem like real real first-world problems, but um, the the restaurants are too small. The, uh, mm. For anybody who's not been, the site is very very small. Um, yeah for for a big tournament and it's pretty crammed in there's a lot of people in there um and the the restaurants are too small so you've got players when you think how many players you've got at those tournaments plus all their coaches and physios and their guests and that kind of thing when it gets to lunchtime, that you just can't get a table there's there's Mm. players walking around in the players restaurants there's players you know big name players just walking around with with trays of food just waiting to find a table um and that's a bizarre situation. Um and then just other little things as well, like the the transport situation isn't great and and those kinds of things. Yeah. We know there's I don't know whether you mentioned it, James, there was some issues with the accreditation for food and that kind of thing and
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it seems pretty wild. I was sat next to a player actually, um, watching the FA Cup final yesterday and the order of play had just come out and his 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 partner was texting him being like, We need to get a book a practice called and say, yeah, 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 I'm on it. And ringing up to book a practice court and already like you know trying to book his warm-up court already he was like getting pushed out to like the secondary venue beyond john Bowen, which is the one that's closest to yeah i was thinking about saying and it's just like well that's pretty like and this is also you know middle sunday isn't that busy all right the juniors start today so that obviously adds a whole load more people but you know there are only 16 players left in each singles draw now so that's, that's shredded the number of players still on site. The doubles draw is obviously moving forward as well. And still, yeah, it does seem like they basically haven't got enough courts. And and actually, I know a, a few listeners will have been to Roland Garrison last week and will have experienced this for themselves. But walking around the grounds, there is no time at which it isn't absolutely rammed. Like yeah, Just yeah. in terms of walking between courts and everything like that, it it is not a very big sight. Um, and it's also like... I know this is te- this is more, I mean, it's, it's exasperated at
1: the French Open, but it's more tennis's problem in general. Like, you go to tennis, you go to tennis matches, you shouldn't have to spend, like, about a third of your day queuing to get in places. And yeah. I, I think, really, tennis does have an issue with this now, that they really should look at this, the idea of just letting people go in to the stadiums while, while the match is going on. Because yeah. I know it's not ideal, Players, but there, there would not be any players were it not for the fans. And you go to Roland Garros the other day, and I think you know, just um Barry, who's um, Julian's coach, said to me like one of the days, should we go out and watch a bit of tennis? And we went out for about fifteen minutes, and there's just queues of hundreds of people to get on every single court, mm. and it's just, it's just unpleasant. It's an unpleasant experience being there.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it, it I just think there are too many ground passes, basically. Like that, that's the yeah. only. You know, it's just like, well, this is how many people we can physically fit in this square footage. Let's sell that many ground passes. Well, it's, it's
1: strange, isn't it? Because, like, what, one thing I noticed is that Chatrier is never actually that busy. Um, <laughs> and, and, and long run, to be fair, they're never, apart from when Djokovic is playing or, or one of the top, maybe the top five, top five male players in the world, because then they're, they're not filling them for the women's matches. I know that hmm. much. Um, but, the, but the outside courts are always packed. They're absolutely yeah. packed. Like, I think even like the match, there was a period in the match where Henry and Jules were playing the other day and that was two Brits against an Aussie and an Aussie, an Aussie and an American. And I think that that court was packed. There were no seats mm. on it. And it was yeah. the same the day before. I watched the day before I watched Kubler and Carter play against Cabral and Matos. No French people again, No real, no big name singles players. And the court was absolutely packed. Yeah. So it's... It is a case of that there's too many people in there, but the people, they need to maybe do something at the French where at certain time, if, if there's free available seats that people can go into Chatrier, because I do think that that's the problem. You've got a huge stadium and, and Chatrier to be fair is a, is a really nice stadium, really nice yeah. tennis court, it's perfectly sized to watch tennis matches. But I went in there three times and all three times, I'm going to say it was less than 10% full.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, I really, I mean, as people know, I, sp- I spent the whole day on Chatrier the other day um, and sort of got a feel for it. And, yeah, it's very rarely full. I, I, and I really don't have a good explanation for it other than people are just wandering around or getting coffee or food or whatever. And, yeah, I, I think what they do lack, you know, obviously you've got Simo Matcha, which is the third biggest court. And that's, you know, not, it's not huge. And you've got 14, which is the other kind of show court. And other than that, there are very few seats. Like, the outside courts don't have many seats on them. And, yeah. you know, I guess that's the same... I mean, it's not the same at the US. There's a lot more seats on outside courts at the US. Um, you know, there are several big grandstands just around, dotted around that overlook a couple of courts. Um, and in Australia, similarly, they've got a few different bleachers. But... The advantage they've got is they're set a little bit outside of town. So, like, obviously, Flushing Meadows is in Queens, which, you know, is not New York at all. and They've got an enormous site. And the same um, at uh, Melbourne Park. Whereas, like, as you know at Roland Garros, it's in the city, really. Albeit, it's actually not quite in the city, but it is very much, like, hemmed in on all sides. And that's why Wimbledon are trying to buy this or trying to build this extra, you know, site. Um, So I do sympathise a bit, but... If you oversell ground passes, like, I don't really have much sympathy at all. So there, seems... did,
1: there did seem to be an overriding feel now with the French Open that they're, they're really just trying to rake money in all the mm. time, like with yeah. the cost of everything, the prices. And this was, I spoke to a few spectators as well, who I know the cost of things. And I know when when you go to these events, you expect to pay premium prices, but the cost of things like drinks and water and just things like ice creams was absolutely extortionate. And yeah. they're also like creating these extra days. Where where they've had a, they've had an extra day on they've now got night do they charge extra for the night session or is so it so the just... night
0: session is a separate ticket yeah. right
1: okay and then and then you've got like you say they're selling too many ground passes it really does look... and they're trying to basically fleece the players as well with with food and not giving yeah. them enough on the accreditation so they really does feel like they're just trying to make a load of money at these things.
0: yeah yeah I'm afraid yeah it does feel like just squeezing on on all sides really and you know I mean. I don't like to blame Amelie Maresmo, but she she's shown no real remorse for that. So, um, yeah, what a crock of shite, basically. Yeah. That's, that's the overriding. <laughs> and I know we should caveat that with, like, we're very lucky to be here, but also, like, it's our job to be here, and therefore it's also our job to point out when things aren't great. Um, yeah. Let's look back specifically at Day 7 because there, well, there, there weren't many great matches actually on Day 7 but there were a couple of real doozies um, I went and sat on Susan Long Glen with a teensy bit of a hangover um, and watched uh, Mira Andreva and Coco Goff So th- incredibly, only the third time in Coco Goff's career that she has faced a player younger than her uh, Mira Andreva is 16 and Coco Goff is a, a relative veteran at 19 Uh, It was actually the first time in a Grand Slam she'd faced a player younger than her. Uh, Calvin, you will have heard lots of chat about Mira Andreva, because everyone has now. She obviously made the fourth round at Madrid, came through qualifying here, and um, she lost in three sets, but gave a pretty good account of herself. I mean, is there as much chatter inside the locker room about her as there much is outside the locker room? Um... Yeah, I think most... I don't know if it's a lot of chat, but a lot of people are men. You know,
1: there's not real much detailed chat, but most people know who she is. She's got a sister as well, hasn't she? Yeah, also, Erica. yeah. Yeah, is she she's older, older or younger? Sister.
0: She's older yeah, older,
1: yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of chat about the two of them, really. Um, about, you know, that they're coming. It's basically those and the two Czech girls, uh, mm. Fyrotovas. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, she's obviously a player, but as with anything with tennis and particularly female tennis you just don't it's hard to predict the path where it goes from here
0: mm, yeah if you just um, said
1: if you just said four years ago I think 2019 was when Coco Goff went to, went on a bit of a tear at Wimbledon um, if you said that four years down the line she'd she'd probably be no closer to winning slams um, I know she's had a final and that kind of thing but everyone would think you were crazy
0: mm, yeah Um. It was a, a pretty good match, at least for the first set. Uh, there were, I think, four breaks of serve in the first set, and Andreva had chances to seal it. Uh, and it went to a tiebreak. Goff played a pretty poor tiebreak, to be quite frank. Um, but then there was an interesting moment, Calvin. It'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this. Uh, she was six-three up in a tiebreak. Goff saved two set points, and after the second one, which is a twenty-shot rally, that uh, Goff actually won with a really good forehand winner, which was rare. Um, Andreva swiped the ball away flat. Into the fourth row of the crowd, and it hit someone. They weren't hurt, but and she was given a a code violation for um, unsportsmanlike conduct. Obviously, abuse of ball. Um, it, it, there is nothing in the rules to say that hitting a ball into the crowd is a compulsory default. It it merely says that if there's like a flagrant or reckless breach of the code by which you can be penalised, then the grand slam supervisor can decide just to DQ you. I mean. Hitting a ball into a crowd is a really stupid thing to do, Calvin, and she said as much afterwards. Do we not need to codify that a bit more and say, look, if you if you whack a ball into the crowd, like, there is a specific punishment for that? Because I don't think we should just be, like, you know, shrugging it off.
1: It's a difficult one with the crowd because, I mean, with the players, it's like if you hit somebody on the court, then it's it's co- it's default, isn't it? Um, well, yeah,
0: but that's that's just precedent now. It's not like yeah. codified
1: in the rules, right? Okay, but you can't do that with the crags. If you you can whack a ball kind of up in the air, mm. and it's gonna land on somebody, it's gonna hit somebody. <laughs> if you know, there's there's it's ninety percent chance it's gonna eventually hit somebody to a degree, or they're ca- gonna catch it. But then that means it's hit them. So it's how you do it. So it's it's really gonna have to come down, I think, then to the umpire. What the umpire decides on, I think I'll, I'll give a bit of defense to the players that. I know with that, kind, you can usually tell whether it's um, predetermined that they're going to do it, or sometimes it's just a little swatting of the ball away and you don't Mm. really know a lot of the time how high the the side bollard type things are. So, you know, I'm sure that she wasn't, I'm sure that if she'd have had a a second to think about, and I spoke with a player the other day who'd got a code violation or doing something similar and he said he realised as soon as he, the ball had left his racket he was in trouble but he didn't really <laughs> think about it before that mm. um and i think that that's the that's the kind of difficulty you've got with it but I've, i haven't seen the incident i don't know how dangerous so, so, it was
0: so very few people have because basically the cameras didn't see it like she was behind the baseline and Goff had won the point so all the kind of replays and stuff are of Goff, and there was a slow motion replay of like a close-up of Andreva as she hits it, you know, like just the swipe, but yeah. didn't see the ball and because it was right in front of us on Longland, we all saw the ball fly into the crowd and it's like it she's hit it flat like from the middle of the court into the seats. Like it, it I'm not saying it's dangerous, but you know, if that hits someone in a in, you know, in an eye or somewhere you know, uncomfortable, yeah. it could do some damage like you know, I, I, you think about the Denis Shapovalov incident, in the Davis Cup a few years ago, when he hit the umpire in the eye, and it's like my, in my head, I'm like, okay, you hit the umpire in the eye, obvious default. But like, if he had done that and hit someone in the crowd in the eye, would he necessarily have been defaulted? And like, well, should why? Do, yeah, should be. Should do, but yeah. I don't think I've ever seen someone defaulted for hitting a ball into the crowd. It may well have happened, but I can't think of like of all the famous defaults. It's almost always someone on the court which yeah, is weird yeah. right because actually the ball abuse rule says if you hit it recklessly and it leaves the enclosure of the court <laughs> whereas like you hit the yeah. umpire it didn't leave the court <laughs> i mean it's, it's but, code violation it,
1: it's always code violation if you whack a ball into the crowd anyway um yeah. but or, or you whack a ball in anger it's code yeah. violation it doesn't even have to go into the crowd you can whack it into the back back curtain and yeah. it's code mm-hmm. violation or it should be um right. The problem is again though we get back to this situation where it's it's it, it tends to get a bit partisan now and you know as we saw with the jokovic situation a couple of years a couple of years ago at the us open where he hit somebody in he hit a line judge in the face was mm-hmm. it in the face in the throat in the throat yeah and you still had jokovic fans going oh no no it's disgrace this it shouldn't have been defaulted and and you know that that, that sort of thing doesn't help it's no. it's the same as it's the same as in football when you get you get blatant penalties and still the television, the, the pundits after, will, will go into 15-minute 15, 15 discussions about whether it was a penalty. It doesn't yeah. help. We only get anywhere on these situations if you go, right, that, that's default. That's, default. Yeah. that's a code violation. And, and yeah. th- there, therein lies the problem, because once you start a debate, then you're going around in circles. Really.
0: Yeah. But then that's why I think if the rules are clearer and less, required less interpretation, then you might be able to, you know, make things a bit a bit clearer. Yeah. It's not the same, but you, you will have seen the the stuff with Anthony Taylor, who refereed the Europa League final last week, yeah. getting yeah. like harassed on the way through the airport. And look, we don't have a problem yet with like tennis officials getting loads of shit. At, I mean, you may, you may tell me otherwise, Calvin, but grassroots level, it feels like there are enough people to to umpire tennis matches, and that it's not. There won't like be many around do... next year. They're getting rid of
1: <laughs> like line judges, aren't they? So yeah. yeah i think the difficulty with that though james is that it's how you quantify because you can't if you say it's a default if it it hits somebody you then you can't just go black and white rules because it's then going to be how how hard it hits somebody and i think that's the problem in the crowd like if it Mm. hits somebody on the on the on the drop that's not that shouldn't be a default Mm. If, if you whack a ball and it's just say you whack it up in the air and it ends up landing on somebody in the crowd yeah that can't be a default but then if you whack it straight and flat at somebody and it hits somebody then that that pr- probably should be a default but yeah. those situations are rarely as straightforward um, yeah if you know what I mean like what what if you whack it straight at up into the like, say you're playing in Arthur Ashe and you whack it straight and hard into the third tier and it and it hits somebody that's not going to hit them all that hard by the time it gets <laughs> up there so it's like how are we going into it if it hits someone in the first tier, it's it's a yeah. uh, it's a code violation. it's a it's a default. I think you I don't know if we can ever get a strict black and white rule on it, but I do think it probably should be left to the umpires to go, that was dangerous. That's you're getting a default for that.
0: Yeah.
1: Or that was silly and that's a code violation. Okay. Fair
0: enough i mean i i still think and this is probably because i don't work directly with people who are playing high level high pressure professional tennis but i still think you should just say right if the ball if you hit the ball like outside of the confines of playing a point and it leaves the court bang that's it but i appreciate that you did not leave much wiggle room does it
1: and also is it is it great for the fans that you know you see like some of the matches and you say Say it's a great match on a night match or something. The crowd are going mad, and somebody loses a loses a fourth set, having had a match point, and they whack a ball straight high up in the air into the third tier of the courts. Do the crowd want to see a default there, or yeah. do they want to see the third set get played, uh, the yeah, fifth yeah. set get played?
0: Yeah, and, and yeah, that's you know, at the at the end of it, the, this is an entertainment business, yeah, like, and you kind of have to think about the. The implications for that but yeah interesting let us know what you think at Unfiltered tennis on twitter or uh, drop us an email uh tennis at gmail.com which actually is what john williamson has done and i wanted to get your thoughts on this calvin because actually there's something quite relevant you sent us from from prague the other day um john says thank you very much for your commitment to tennis unfiltered pulling together the subjects the content i love the show i'm a relatively new tennis obsessive playing and obsessively watching wta tournaments uh, the last 32 of Roland Garros is very heavy on Eastern European, Russian, and Belarusian players. Uh, he is right. Uh, what are they doing right? What's the rest of the world doing wrong to not have more players in the latter stages of the tournaments and quite possibly probably every tournament? Uh, here's my list, which I think you'll be mainly in agreement with. Uh, he reckons eight Eastern European players, uh, nine Russian, Belarusian, three from the rest of Europe, eight from the Americas, one from uh, like far east of Asia, um, two from Ukraine, and one from Africa. Um, I mean, yeah, Calvin, you obviously, Luke was out in Czech Republic the other day and sent that very, like, just reported some interesting tidbits.
1: Yeah, um, he was basically saying how, I think it was at the National Tennis, I can't remember exactly where it was, it was at National Tennis Center, and just said there were rows and rows of teenage girls just training, um, you know, I think he said there were like, like 15 courts in a row, all with just teenage girls training hard and looking very, very good at their National Tennis Academy. Um, in terms of what they're doing right, um, I think for one, again, we keep coming back to it, it's a culture thing over there. I think in, in Czech Republic, if you're kind of quite sporty, I think what the aim is for teenage girls in particular, they want to be tennis players. That, that That's the dream of, Ch- of Czech Republic girls, whereas how many other countries can you say that about? Other countries produce players, there's no doubt. But if you were to go, what does a teenage girl in that country want to be? I'm not sure how many countries would have professional tennis player mm. at the top of their, their rankings of that. So it's a culture thing. That, again, and other than that, it's it's always the same. It comes back to it. They have good coaches. They have good tournament structure, good mm. national tournament structure. And that's what they do. And that you will get players if you do that and it doesn't have to be needs a bit of money it doesn't need millions and millions and millions of pounds thrown at it but they keep it simple as well they keep yeah. things simple at that national academy it's not they're not trying to be too smart and going oh we've got world class physiotherapists we've got world class sports scientists and that kind of thing you get good coaches you get good good they get clay courts good coaches good climate good competition structure that's what mm. they do and that's the same as when you ask how is how do france keep producing why have france always got 10 male players in the top 100 in the world good coaches good competition structure yeah culture and I, those three I, things
0: I, and i think that what's interesting about that it, and we were discussing this kind of um as journalists the other day about france specifically and how they've, they've got a huge volume of players as you say in the top 100 top 250 but no grand slam champions in recent memory in the men's game and um I think that's fine it's like law of averages you'll probably you'll probably get there but but equally like in the first week of grand slam you've got loads of matches that people in france will watch because there are french players involved whereas in britain yeah great annie Murray's won three grand slams and, and that was good but then like as soon as he retires or as soon as in his case he had hip surgery and like fell off the the top of the game it's like well we've only got three blokes playing main draw so there's really not a lot of tennis that British people are going to get interested in, even in the biggest two weeks of the tennis year in Britain when it's on free for free-to-air for TV. And it's like, what would you rather? Would you rather have three Grand Slam titles in the last 20, 15 years but very few in the top 100 or 10 players in the top 100 every year for the last 15 years and no Grand Slam champions? I'm absolutely certain I know which one I'd rather have. Uh, which one? The 10 players in the top 100, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I
1: think the thing with France is and I know this because I've spoken to French coaches and I've been down to their national academy to to witness it for, for for a week a couple of years ago and they think that the reason is they don't the French players don't have the absolute winner's mentality. They know they produce tennis players and and produce very very good tennis players. They think that they don't the French culture as such doesn't produce absolute winners. Right. Um and it was interesting because they were very, very. The coaches there are excellent. Uh, who they have, and they they know that this psychology element is what they're lacking in their best players. Yeah. But um, and they was they were saying that they're really fi- trying to find a way how to do it. And I said, okay, what what are you doing now? And they're basically like, and this is genuine. They goes, oh well, we've given each player this book and we told them to read it. <laughs> and that, that was their mental training and the book was from some, it was from so I forget what it was. it was, I think it was by Jim Lure um, and it was some book that was like from the mid-1980s um, about sort of psychology in tennis and it was like right, that's what you're doing? And But it's interesting though that they always, you know the, the player who was there at the time when I went, they, they had a few players who I think are still in and around the top 200 but their, their real diamond that they had there at the time was Hugo and Bear and they, yeah. they really thought that he was going to be the one that, that changed this, that he was going to be the Grand Slam champion. Um, and again, he just, Hugo just seems to have, he's a fantastic tennis player, but he just seems to have sunk into that, what the French really tend to do, doesn't it? Mm. Like somewhere between 20 and 60 in the world,
0: yeah. usually. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's a shame, really, because as you say, I remember him, we talked about him as like, the guy you could turn into the modern serve volley, one of those guys who's yeah. got like the skill sets and stuff. But I mean he still
1: think... he still plays great. He was in he was in Sardinia when I was there and you watch him and you think this is a serious, serious tennis player who should be able to compete with the best players in the world. But yeah. again it's it's psychologically there's just a a softness in mentality when a softness at the core when real real serious stuff starts.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I appreciate, John, that we've we've answered your question about Eastern Europe by then talking about France. But I think <laughs> what, 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 what I would say about the Eastern Europe and Russia stuff, like the mentality that is created by those places, and it is like, it's a sort of do or die thing. It's like if you're from, you know, some of these Eastern European countries where they don't have a lot of money, and it's like, you've got to absolutely scrap for it, whereas... In countries with more money, like Grand Slam nations, for example, where you are looked after a bit more and like you know you're you're given a safety net of an income and the rest of it, and it's like, well, what do you really have to really scrap for? Like actually being world number two hundred just seems to work for them. I I think I do think there's a dated element to that though, and I think it's an
1: easy way to go. I don't really agree with like why Mm. why does Spain keep producing? Why does Spain produce so many? Um, That they're going to have, you know, they're going to have probably one of the one of the three best tennis players of all time, and they might be in the process of having another one of the five best players of all time coming through, they, they get they get female players as well, they get male players, they, they're the best around. What about Argentina? Why do they do it? Why, if it's about that kind of thing, why does Russia and Czech Republic, why aren't they as good at football and other mm-hmm. sports? It comes mm-hmm. down to, like I say, it comes down the main factors, are culture, quality coaching, and competition structure. Mm. The three C's, if you will,
0: James. (laughs) There's a book here, Calvin, I can already smell it. Let's move on. Uh, Alexander Zverev won last night, beat uh, Francis TFO in four sets in the night session where he's becoming uh, rather popular, it pains me to say. Um, Pretty ominous form, Calvin, Alexander Zverev. I mean, he was playing great clay court tennis last year before he was obviously struck down by that ankle injury. Um, he plays Grigor Dimitrov in the fourth round, and then either Nishioka or Echeverri in the quarterfinals. I mean, it's quite hard to see him losing either of those matches, isn't it? Uh,
1: yeah, but he's so up and down since he came back. I watched him last mm. night; he played well. I watched the end of that match, watched the last couple of sets, and um, he played very well. But he's so up and down. It, it wouldn't, I'd, it wouldn't surprise me if he lost to any. I don't think he, I don't think he'd lose to Nishioka, mm. but. I th- it would not surprise me if he lost to either Dimitrov or Echeverri. Yeah. I'd make him favorite in all of those, but I'd only make him a 60-40 favorite in both of them. Mm. Just because of his form, fully fits Zverev, you make him definite favorite. But mm. awful I'd say fully fit, he's fully fit now. But if he, if he was this if it was last year's version of him, then I'd make him strong favorite against any of those. And mm-hmm. he does seem to be playing better, but I still you know, I think it's only we're only one tournament removed from I forget who we lost to a few weeks ago, but he got battered by somebody who mm. wasn't right.
0: Um, I think the the key is, you know, he's now in a situation he's not been in for a long time where he's played, you know, three matches in a week and he's gotta go out again tomorrow and play again and like, okay, you've got a day off in between but as Igor Shontek said with I think some sort of insight the other day, it's not a day off. Like it's still you're still going to practice and you're still oh, playing yeah, and yeah. you're still thinking and you know, all of that kind of, and look, being uh, mentally draining is a grand slam. And I think Alexander Zverev done a lot of mental capacity to be drained. So, um, as we well know, was, I of, was in the
1: changing room the other day and it's very, there, there wasn't many people in there's only me and him and maybe a couple more people in the men's changing room, but he was there eating cereal in a pair of sunglasses <laughs> in, um, in, in the men's changing room, which doesn't have any light into it at all cause it's underground. <laughs> um, but yeah, I found it bizarre and it was very extravagant sunglasses as well, like blue, <laughs> blue mirrored lenses, which I just found very odd. Um, That's
0: very suspicious.
1: But um, um... yeah, I mean, I will say as well that he does have, he, he has got TFO's number. I think I heard it last night that he's he's won seven out of their eight matches. Right. So it's, if you were to ask him who he wanted to play in that round, he'd probably have chosen someone like TFO. And yeah. TFO again, like, I mean, I, I love Francis TFO. He's, he's a great guy and he's great to watch, but he doesn't half play some daft tennis at times. <laughs> like, for, for all his talent, like, I mean, there must have been like, there must have been 10 shots last night that I was watching. And I wanted TFO to win last night, purely on the basis that one of them is a dickhead and the other one is the opposite of a dickhead. Um, <laughs> but I was watching him thinking, like, what on earth are you doing there? Like what on earth is that shot that you've just tried? And I must have thought that like ten or twelve times in two sets.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah, it's frustrating. And you know, obviously clay isn't clay is his worst surface, and you know he he would thrives much more on the the quicker surfaces. But Alexander Zverev thrives on quick surfaces as well, and and he's got a different game when he plays on clay, and it's quite annoying. I don't know, know if he impressive. does
1: thrive on quick surfaces, James. I think he thrives on quick. Conditions more than right. on, on middling services like he doesn't thrive on grass, does he? Mm, um, yeah, that's true. And and some of the hard courts he's not great on. US Open is famously slow for a hard court and he's made the final there. Um, and to be fair, the he does well on the indoors where the ball goes through the air quick and the courts tend to be slow. I think right. that's what he actually prefers.
0: Mm, fair enough. Um the other match I just wanted to mention, albeit it doesn't probably need much more um, revisiting, is Igor Toronto won yesterday 6-love-6-love, six six love, the fourth double bagel of her career. She's now won six sets at this year's French Open, four of them 6-love. Uh, she has in total 11 French Open bagels. The all-time record is 26. Chris Evert, she's already pretty much halfway there and, you know, she's obviously very early on in her career. Um... It's not news. Iga takes very good at the French Open, but I thought it worthy of mentioning uh, that she double-bageled uh, Wang Jin Yu, who, um, as you can imagine, uh, got off court. I think maybe one of the quickest court exits from court I've seen uh, in this French Open, other than maybe uh, Taylor Fritz yesterday after he lost to Cerandolo. Um And actually, in fairness, and I give the French crowd a lot of stick, they clapped him off. like They, they did say, fair enough, mate. Like, you know... He've entertained us and he gave us some crap, but <laughs> see you next year. <laughs> maybe they were just glad to see the back of him. Um, we'll just kind of briefly look back at week one as a whole, Calvin, and, and maybe look forward to week two in doing it. Uh, from the first three rounds, are we any closer to knowing whether Alcaraz or Djokovic is going to win this men's title?
1: Um, no, I think Ruben's in the mix as well. Mm. Um, not, I wouldn't have him on a par with those two, but I'd have him just underneath, I think. I think Alcaraz is going to win it. I I think he's just playing better than Djokovic is. Djokovic is like, you know, you'd you'd still favour Alcaraz to beat... I'd still make Alcaraz strong favour against Rune. But Rune beat Djokovic pretty comfortably only a couple of weeks ago. So I I think that's um, a match that Djokovic won't really fancy. And then we will see... What we will see then, though, is... How much this talk of like, I mean, the, Djokovic's fans go, oh, he doesn't care about any of the other tournaments, he only cares about the slams. I think we'll find out there what um, if how true that is. Because Rune's beaten twice now, in the last twice they've played. He's beaten two, um,
0: he's 2-0 and o against him, isn't he? Uh, I think it's two and one. I think there was a Djokovic win earlier on, but yeah. Was there, right, I mean... okay.
1: Um, but he's, beat the, like, he's won the last two though, hasn't he? Beat him in Paris, and not small tournaments as well. Final no, no. Paris and, what was it, semis of Rome?
0: Uh, quarters in Rome, yeah.
1: Quarters in Rome, yeah. Um, but I, I think Alcaraz is favourite. I, th- I think that you know this is not the Djokovic that uh, that it's not peak Djokovic, put it that way. And I think we're getting close to peak Alcaraz. Um, yeah. And the main thing is, I think what the problem that Djokovic has got now is he's had what what all of the big three had was this. This sort of stigma from the other players that they were did did the other players really believe that they were going to beat them when they went out and caught them? And I always Mm. said that there was only three players who really believed that they were going that they could and were going to beat the the, those three players, and that was uh, Murray, Wawrinka, and Del Potro. Mm. The other players, I think, sometimes they beat them, but I think they thought, "How's that happened?" Whereas I think Murray, Del Potro, and Wawrinka they all thought, yeah, I can beat these players and I'm going to beat them. Um, And Mm. I think that's the problem that Jock which is now that I don't think Rune or Alcaraz doesn't 100% believe that they can beat him.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I I watched Alcaraz um, from the sixth floor of the uh, Philip Chatrier uh, media centre where there's a, a bar that overlooks the court and it really does overlook it as you can imagine. And I watched the third set against Shapovalov and just like I mean, look, obviously Shapovalov's a good matchup for Alcaraz and and has his own problems, but it's insane the amount of time Alcaraz has on the court. Like, Shapovalov was, you know, all kind of flurry and flair and uh, throwing everything he possibly could at Alcaraz and then, like, he would just be there. He's like, no, I've been here for a while and now I'm going to send it back with with interest. And I I haven't seen Djokovic... Djokovic has played... I mean, the tie-breaks he played against Davidovic-Fekina were ridiculously good, but he's not looked as comfortable as Alcaraz ever has... And he's also... I think Alcaraz has worked out how to play in the wind better than Djokovic has. Like, Djokovic never likes the wind. He always looks a bit discombobulated by it and, you know, kind of throwing his feet and arms all over the place. And I think... And it's not unlikely. It's been pretty windy this week. Chatrier, I'm convinced, creates wind out of nowhere. And I don't think it's unlikely that in that matchup it could be pretty windy. And if it is, I think I would favour Alcaraz over Djokovic. Um as much for the wind as also just general tennis ability but um, right yeah. two more two more questions uh, for before we wrap up and i let Calvin get away to Serbiton um, how on earth did Daniil Medvedev lose to Thiago and I'm I'm going to once say his name the Portuguese way which I believe is Sibos Vilt but otherwise I'm going to call him Saboth Wild because everyone else will say that how on earth did Daniil Medvedev lose that match Calvin? I mean wh- it's Medvedev isn't it he just he's, he's,
1: that's the best way of summing it up he's crazy and like he's rabbiting on a bit he's had a pretty good play season had a really good yeah. play season and then like he's suddenly losing that and he's going get me off this surface I hate this surface and like, you know it's, it's just crazy you'll always, you'll always have those results from him I think if you yeah. played him again if you played him later on the same afternoon there was a I think he'd probably beat him 2-2-2 two, two and two or something <laughs> like that but he's just crazy he's not you're never going to get the 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 predictability that you'll get from, I guess, Pete Djokovic, Alcaraz, that kind of thing from Medvedev, um, unless he's on a hard court, in which case he tends to be quite relentless. But I think on other surfaces, you're always going to get these, these odd results that he comes up with.
0: Um, Sabath Wild. I mean, look, we all know that Sabath Wild has some troubling, uh, features to his, uh, life story, so to speak. Um and i discussed them earlier in the week but i i hear calvin from your mates at tennis fizz that he's someone that they have seen the numbers of and kind of really rated um is it i mean is is he someone you've heard noise about before
1: i mean i have heard of him um i don't know how good he is i just assumed he was a top you know solid top 80 player i guess mm. um but I don't I've not actually seen loads of him to be honest but that's interesting that Tennis Viz have got some some good data on him and they seem as, as moving up pretty quick
0: mm. um, and just finally uh, I mean in a short question who can stop Shontek my, my notes say not Rybakina because she's pulled out ill not Krijikova because she lost in the first round uh, on Jabeur, Arena Sabalenka uh, have either of them got a chance of stopping Shontek uh, when they I might meet them
1: I don't think Jabeur has I think Sabalenka absolutely has um, mm. She's again. She has the weapons to do it, and that's if we have another. If it, if we have a week of weather like we've just had, then I think that increases the likelihood of that. I I really hope that's the final, because the women's final we could do with. Can't remember like when was the last time there was a women's slam final that was specifically the the currently the two best players in the world that mm. you could say. That I was mean, the you. Case.
0: Australian Open final, Rebecca and Sabalenka wasn't yeah, far off. Yeah, that's off.
1: Two, two out of the three, I'd say there. But um, Yeah. But given again, like, I think if, it's not just the match in terms of that. I think, yeah, you're right in that, the match it was. But I think in order to like, to get the hype on it, you need, Rabakina wasn't seen as one of the, the two, three best players in the world. She was seeded low, wasn't she? She, was, mm. well, she didn't get any points from Wimbledon. Yeah, but, um, exactly. I, I think, you know, so something that you can go right Top seed, second seed. Like, they're going in as... Uh, and I think they are, are they? Those two? Savalenka and... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's just... I can't remember the last time that we had a top seed, second seed, where I mean, there might have been a Jabour and Schvontek somewhere. But... Yeah,
0: the US Open final, but I don't think anyone believed that they yeah. were. No. Exactly, yeah, exactly,
1: yeah. So I think that that would be good if we could get that. Um, I mean, it's what we've been wanting for a while on the women's game. Yeah.
0: There's a few... Definitely. I think
1: there's a few... Is Andrescu still in the tournament?
0: Uh, is Bianca Andreescu still in the tournament? What a great question. She was playing last night and she lost. I am right. told by my um, much more knowledgeable flatmate, who was keeping an eye on things, she lost one and one to Lesia Serenko, who right. is sort of like making quite remarkable uh, progress through the draw. I mean, but, I didn't um, think I didn't think Andreescu
1: could win it, but she's the kind of player who who those top players don't really want to play against um, yeah. because of what she can do. I mean, she's a bit better on a hard court, but. Um, yeah. I don't see anybody really beating Chvontek or um, Sabalenka mm. on the way to the final now, to be honest.
0: No. Sabalenka plays Sloane Stephens in the night match today, by the way, which is the uh, first women's night match uh, of the tournament. It's only the, I think, there were a couple before they were allowed full fans back in, but it is only the second one with full fans. So, it's um, it's a weird
1: situation, that. I know a lot of people are talking about it, but having seen it firsthand, it's... I don't really know how you go about it. One I think is am I right in saying that Amazon still have a, a quite yeah, a big yeah. say in who gets it. So it's yeah. tough to, to to level that at the tournament because Amazon, you know, they want what they're paying for, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um the second one is having have seen it firsthand that the women's matches are just not getting crowds in on mm. on the on the main courts. And I, I I went on the other day um I watched Sabalenka against I forget what she was playing. Um yeah, it was now. I think it was. Might be one of the Ukrainians.
0: Um, oh, was it Kostyuk in on chat? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, there's no one in there. And mm. you know, I
1: think it's it, it's tough how you do it to say, right, we're going to go for a women's match just because it's a women's match to prove a point, and then think, well, we could have like less than thirty percent crowd in there.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, albeit, as we said earlier, <laughs> chatter is never full anyway because people are too busy getting coffee.
1: The, the match when I went, the match when, when I was watching one of the women's, it wasn't that one, it was another one that I was watching and it was empty and I came out. And then as soon as it finished, there was a men's match going on and the crowds were flooding in. Now, I'm not saying that should be, that's right or wrong or, mm. or what have you, but that was the case. And like, you know, it doesn't, it, there is always empty spaces, but I think there is a. Um, an ambivalence towards the women's matches so far is what, yeah. what I witnessed
0: um, I think the other thing is and Moresmo's excuse is that it can be short um, and I think that's fine but I think if you just start it and start the session an hour earlier stick a doubles on with a not before and like if the women's match goes long you can move that you know, to another court but that's what they did on Chatrier yesterday when Ribakina pulled out early so there was only two matches and Shontek won love and love so they they stuck another du- a doubles match on now i appreciate it's harder to do that with a late session but if you're not starting at half eight which is objectively insane then you can do that um but, they just
1: shouldn't yeah. have a night session it's just ridiculous the french well, open on gone for you just stick an extra match on and then just say amazon could say amazon are going to come on air at whatever time it is just stick an extra match on if you've got floodlights now stick an extra match on with the same crowd staying but again the only reason they've got a night session is because they want to sell another set of tickets. Hmm. It's just ridiculous. Like no Wimbledon doesn't have a night session, but you can play under the lights on it. And the friend the, the US Open's a bit different because they've always done it. And I even question now like it, it's the culture has changed a bit there. You used to get these iconic matches and I guess that was when you had Americans at the very very top of the game who hmm. could win the slams. I know Taylor Fritz is a top top 10 player now. But you had guys who you thought really could win them at the top. And those matches when you had the night sessions were a different beast to what they are now. Um, But I still think now that having said that Taylor Fritz is a pretty big name in America, and I think what you get in the the US Open is you get a lot of night sessions with Taylor Fritz on trying Mm -hmm. to recreate that kind of thing. But the French has never that there's no reason for these night sessions other than we just want to make more money and yeah, that's what that's unfortunately what the whole tournament is thinking of at the minute
0: yeah agreed well that's all we got time for uh Calvin because you've got to get away to Surbiton and I've got to get up to Roland Garros what, what jet setting lives we lead well, it doesn't always feel that way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from, from
1: London to London and from Paris to somewhere else in Paris That's,
0: yeah uh, exactly um, um, yeah. thanks very much for, for joining me nevertheless um, thanks very much for listening of course to you uh, I'll be back tomorrow with a, another diary to look back at day seven and ahead to the rest of the week but other than that please do come back next time
1: 5 four, three, two. One zero, all engines running. Lift We have a look off.
0: Sports, social, podcast network.